Uh, how's it going, coaches? Hopefully you guys have enjoyed your first uh, week or so of football, finally getting to put pads on. I know me and Coach Walls have been having a blast with it. Uh, finally get back to doing you know, what we love to do in the season. Uh, if you guys haven't yet, make sure you go check out our website, runthepower.com. Check out our uh, free, our standard uh, membership access. We still got a lot of cool, really cool videos on there for you guys. It won't be updated as much, but still some great stuff on there. Uh, and then if you like that, go upgrade or go um, purchase our premium membership. You can do that monthly or you can do that yearly. Uh, and it's got some great stuff. We've already added Inside Zone. Uh, and our newest edition, which we just put up Sunday, uh, was Inside Zone Cap, 5051 Cap, and 5051 Seal. Uh, caps the backside tied in with the C-gap and reading that backside in. So uh, you guys go check that stuff out. It's some really great stuff uh, to help us keep learning, help you guys keep learning, uh, and stay uh, engaged in football even outside of your own team. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Skycoach. Skycoach is a proven sideline replay technology that will give you the advantage over opponents utilizing anything else. With 24-7 support, a flexible network that works in any stadium and in any size crowd, and the most reliable, innovative software available. To be the best, you must use the best. I am blessed that here at Broken Arrow, I get to use Skycoach. Uh, we get a wide shot and a butt shot. We get that immediately following the play in the game, uh, and it's just nothing puts you over the edge like that. Obviously, getting that butt shot as an offensive line coach is, is a heaven on heaven uh, you know during a game. Uh, don't let your team down by choosing something inferior. Skycoach is the market leader in sideline replay. Go visit them at myskycoach.com to learn more. This episode is also brought to you by the powerful Sideline Power. Sideline Power is the industry leader in coaching communication. Offering cutting-edge technology and innovation, Sideline Power helps coaches around the country elevate their program to the next level with new and used headsets, end-zone cameras, drones, portable sound systems, timers, and much, much more. Sideline Power works one-on-one -on -one with some of the most influential coaches and nationally ranked programs in high school football. They continue to help coaches push the envelope of player and program development. From NFL-level coaching communications to cutting-edge video technology, Sideline Power encompasses a full array of products needed to unleash the full potential of any program. Throughout the expansion of their product offering, Sideline Power has remained committed to offering quality coaching communication at price points for every program. They're family-owned and operated with a customer-first mentality. Sideline Power is truly the number one choice for coaching communication. You can give them a visit at sidelinepower.com, uh, email them at info at sidelinepower.com, or just give them a call at 800-496-4290. This episode is also brought to you by Team Builder. Team Builder provides strength and conditioning program software to athletic programs around the country. Whether you write your own program, you have a full-time strength coach, or you need training programs, Team Builder can make your program more efficient, more accountable, and smarter when it comes to measuring your team's effort in the weight room. Visit their website and start a 14-day free trial. Uh, and right now, they're offering coaches a complimentary in-season football strength program. As I'm sure all you guys have heard through Twitter and social media, or if you have buddies with the New England Patriots, uh, they squat up to 90% of their one-rep max deep into the playoffs. If your in-season strength conditioning philosophy is to just maintain, uh, then you're not doing it right. You can get this template once you start a 14-day trial, free trial with Team Builder. Just reach out to them and tell them that you heard it here from us. Uh, go visit Team Builder at teambuilder.com, and that's teambuilder.com. 
And then last but not least, uh, our newest sponsor is Guardian Caps. Guardian Caps are soft shell helmet covers that reduce impact during practice. Worn by over a thousand high schools, uh, like my high school at Broken Arrow and Coach Walls' over at Ankeny, and over a hundred colleges like Clemson, Texas, Oklahoma, and Iowa State. Most programs utilize them for their guys in the box to address the repetitive, sub-concussive blows that add up throughout the seasons or an athlete's career. They're also great for body blows, helmets to knees, hips, quarterback's hands, while keeping the helmets looking good for game day, and protecting speed flexes from cracking. You can go check out Guardian Caps and request a quote uh, for great team pricing. Uh, Go check them out at guardiancaps.com. Uh, that's going to do it for the reads. On this episode of RTP, we talk with Mikado Henson. Coach Henson is the Assistant Athletic Director of Player Development for Texas A&M Football. Listen as we talk uh, with Kato about his role in developing young men and women on and off the field, the importance of providing new life experiences and spiritual development for your athletes, and some great stories he has about officiating player weddings like mine and ring announcing for boxing matches. Uh, Mikado is a, is a great friend of mine, a great mentor of mine. Uh, he, he married me and my wife. He was at Houston while I was there. He's now at Texas A&M. He's a great guy. If you can get anyone half as good as Mikado, uh, a guy like that on your staff to really pour into your kids, uh, it's going to truly develop them into the men you want them to be. Um, and, and that's why we're in it, as we've said. And that's why you guys are in it from all we've talked to you guys. So this is an awesome episode. I, I couldn't have been happier to be uh, be able to get Mikado on here, um, especially this late in the right before their season. Uh, so we want to thank him again, but but it was truly awesome getting to catch up with him, and I, we really hope you guys enjoy this. Uh, you can follow Coach Henson on Twitter, at Cotto Henson. Hope you guys enjoy. They're really willing, and you don't have to kind of twist arms. It, it sure makes your job a lot easier, you know. It does, you know. There's there's guys that you uh, coach that are kind of hardheads and things like that. And if you ever do experience a breakthrough, I mean, that's really reward rewarding as well. Uh, that usually comes with a lot of uh, headache and a lot of anguish and anxiety and things like that. But then you get guys like Rowdy Harper and uh, guys you know they're going to come to work every single day, come out to practice with a with a mentality to go out there and grind and be in the trenches and things like that, but be a vocal leader and, uh, and, and things like that. So uh, Rowdy came, uh, we just had to fine tune some edges, but he came to University of Houston with, uh, with all the work ethic and all the coachability and all the things that coaches look for in an athlete. Uh, he already came with him. So he was already taught well. Uh, we just honed some things and then just a lifelong process. And, and the way that they had you set up, uh, Cotto, at, at Houston, you know, and I, I'm excited mm-hmm. to get into how you're, how you're rolling over at, at A&M now, but it was cool because Mikado was like the first guy you went and met. Like when they brought all the parents in, I don't know if it was junior day or what it was, but it was like Coach Sumlin brought us in. It was the very first person you met was Mikado, and he talked, and he talked to your parents. He talked to you and a big group. That was before you talked to anybody at Houston. You, you talked to Mikado, and, and talk about a guy that you want to meet first off to – to uh, bring you into the program, it was awesome. I, you know, we've had multiple uh, while you, while he was at Houston, multiple like Bible studies. He'd lend me books. I'm pretty sure it took me three years to t- uh, to ever bring them back. 
but uh, he was very open with that. I'd go in there, talk about whatever. And it, it was never, I mean, it was always great, great things. And so, uh, I, you know, I always thought that was a really cool deal how they did it. I don't know how other schools do it because I've never been to those, but um, I thought it was, it was the right way to do it. And then, you know, Mikado was actually in a, in a better place there for a while than anybody was. His room was, was right where, uh, where, where we had to do study hall all the time, where our academic people were there. Uh, so when yeah. we actually had time, like, that's why you're up there. You're always up there doing some kind of uh, studying or, you know, something like that other yeah. than times you're, you're a few hours you're at football. So it was an awesome way to just – anytime you walk by, Mikado was there, shoot something off of him, there's almost always somebody in your office. Yeah, I, I think um, location is key and uh, availability is key. So I had the privilege of serving at the University of Houston for 14 seasons as the team chaplain, which – you could also call character coach, uh, player development, all those, whatever you want to call it. I'm not a title guy. So, um, but being there, like you said, Rowdy, when, when there were junior days and recruiting visits and things like that, being able to speak to parents. And I tell you what, um, it doesn't matter what the school is, where it is, um, you know, division or whatever for parents to bring their kids, you know, with the thought of, I might leave my kid here for four years you want them to feel comfortable right off the bat. And so the recruiting coaches, you know, obviously doing their thing out in the schools and meeting the kid and setting up the visits and things like that. But Coach Sumlin saw that it was really important that one of the first voices they heard was that of the team chaplain, almost to tell moms, particularly moms, but also dads, hey, when your son comes here, yeah, they're going to be coached hard. They're going to have a lot of academic responsibilities. Uh, their plate's going to be full, but there's also going to be someone here that's going to care about their well-being off the field. And, you know, I have zero desire to coach on the field. My 100% desire still is to help coach people to be the best version of themselves off of the field. And so I would just, you know, basically just share. It wasn't a spiel. It wasn't a recruiting pitch. I always told parents, I'm not here to recruit your son. I'm here to share with them the opportunity that they're going to have to grow in other areas outside of academics and athletics. And that would be spiritually and in their character and their integrity and things like that. So, and then to have the office where my office was, man, you know, strategic location was key. And to be able to have it away from the coach's office down the hall and for young men to be able to come in my office, and it was also young women and from other sports and stuff to come in and seek counsel, just want to talk, someone to listen, whatever it might be they could come in there almost uh, unbeknownst to their coaches. So the coaches aren't, you know, saying, hey, uh, Roddy was in there. What was he talking about? What, what's going on with him? And then the coaches trusted me that if athletes came to my office, that I wasn't always going to run and tell them what the athlete was going through. And the young men or women who came into my office, they also understood that, man, this is a safe place. This is a safe spot. I'm going through a lot of stress and struggle and, you know, whether it be injury, family situations, whatever it would be. And they said, well, if I can at least come and vent or get it off my chest or just talk or get prayer or whatever it was, I, I like to view my office as one of those safe places that people could come in. And it's one of them, those isolated spaces without the padded walls, you know what I mean? So people could come and get counsel and just come and sit and learn and listen. And I'll be honest, and I'll, I'll close with this here. I'll be honest, some, some conversations, that I had with young men, I had no idea that they'd be life-changing. I just thought they were just regular sit-down conversations. Next thing you know, years down the road, 
people sending text messages or if I see them and they'll say, hey, those talks we used to have. And I would seriously rack my brain going, what do we talk about? <laughs> but, just, but just being available and just being accessible and also just trying my best to uh, model what authentic manhood looked like. I think that that was attractive to the young men on the team. So I did a long, it took a long time to build and establish trust. Once you establish trust, then you can build a real relationship. Everything is built on the establishment of trust, on the foundation of trust. And once they trust you, you can now share hard truth with them. You can correct them. You can encourage them. You can, all those things that are, they're, you know, all those, you can discipline them, all those things. And they, they know that it's coming from a place of love because they trust you. And I always told everyone who sat down with me, and Roddy can attest to this, I'm not here to judge you. I'm not here. You come in here and share anything you want. The number one rule in counseling is don't look surprised. So people would come in and share certain things, and you just look, and you nod, and you affirm, and then you work from there and try to go about finding a resolution or just, you know, till the next time you can talk. Well, that was what I was going to say. The coolest part, it seemed like to me, was like, it wasn't like they brought in some some meek and mild guy that hey, let's talk about your feelings, you know, because for the most part, no one on the team wanted, wanted to talk to that person, right? You don't want to, as a playing a manly sport, that's not the person you want to talk to. So when you get a guy that's, that's a bigger guy that's a little bit gruff at times and, and you know, mm-hmm. is into boxing, is into football, is into all this, you know, what you think of as manly stuff, it's like, okay, I can go talk to him about something and, and not feel, you know, whatever whatever the right word is. You don't have to feel – like you're going to a session or going to anything like that. It's like, okay, sometimes right. I need someone to talk to. It's some other guy, you know, that, that is like what you would want to be like as far as a big guy that likes sports. And, and so it didn't feel uncomfortable being able to talk to someone like that. Yeah, that was always my deal. I mean, one, Carl Henson raised me to be a, to be a man, a man's man, if you would call it. Um, that's just kind of how I was brought up, man, around sports. Um, my dad used to take me hunting and fishing and all the, all those things. And then when I got called to ministry through the fellowship of Christian athletes, you know, I knew that God was going to use me how I was. He was going to be changing some things in me, but he wasn't going to just, like you said, rather make me some just meek and lowly type guy. Um, I mean, that's just how I am. So I'll be honest. Sometimes I would say things and I would go, Oh my gosh, should I have said it that way or whatever? But, and of course I haven't done everything right. This is my 19th season coming up. I haven't done it right in 19 years of doing this, but the one thing that I try to be is authentic and I try to be pretty vulnerable about my shortcomings and, and things like that. So I don't want to come across as some, uh, holier than thou, uh, someone who's just attained perfection or anything like that. That could be further from the truth, man. I'm flawed. I'm all jacked up and I'm in the same race that every, every single person's in. I've just had a little more years, a few more years of experience now being 43 years of experience. But I, um, that's, you know, I was just kind of taught that way, you know, don't, don't tiptoe, don't, don't tiptoe through the tulips around any issues, attack them. Cause that's the way real men want to do. They want to attack their issues and, and uh, want to speak openly and freely and someone they feel comfortable with. And, I'd like to think that that wasn't something learned from a manual or a, uh, or a seminar or a conference. That was really something that Carl Henson instilled in me and something that the Lord really shaped and molded through mentors and, and different teachers and leaders in my life 
that have kind of shaped me to be the person that I am right now. Kato, uh, I got, I got so many questions going through my head. Cause honestly, I'm, I'm moving into a position that's going to be relatively similar to, to what you're doing. I'm going to be doing some in, instructional coaching. So I'm, I'm anxious to pick your brain, but, uh, um, mm-hmm. are, are you doing, are you doing anything with other adults, like other coaches? Are there some of the guys there that you're also having to, to kind of walk through some things because we all know, you know, and I'm going to be working with adults. I think it's, it's almost easier to work with, you know, young men or, or young women mm-hmm. because they are so moldable where all of a sudden now yeah. you maybe get to an, an older level. Maybe it's even a senior player who's, who's kind of been around the block. You know, what, what are some strategies maybe you have if you are working with some of those older people as opposed to maybe some of the younger ones? Yeah. You know, I've had, I've been fortunate to be able to work around adults, whether it be coaches or even adult athletes. I was a chaplain for the Houston Rockets for seven seasons. Mm-hmm. And so I was getting to deal with, you know, adult players that had families. I was getting to deal with the trainers and Coach Rudy Tomjanovich. I mean, just their whole coaching staff, Jim Boylan, some other guys. And so, and then all my years with FCA was doing coaches ministry. And so, yes, I do primarily work with the college age kids, but a lot of these past 19, 20 something years, I've been working with a lot of coaches, a lot of adults. And the one thing that I found out, it doesn't matter if it's a middle school child, a college athlete, a pro athlete, everyone wants love and everyone wants discipline. So it's just kind of how you have to package it for them to be able to receive it. Everyone wants the same thing in some form or fashion. So as far as um, working with adults go, here's the approach that I took. And I was taught this. I didn't come up with this. I was always taught to, to um, approach every situation from a professional relationship. Just build professionally, build professionally, and just continue to do that for as long as it takes. The next step you're going to get past professional relationship is a personal relationship. That's when you're going to start asking about families. That's when you're going to start asking about upbringing. That's when you're going to ask about the, all those other personal things about that particular person. Well, once you get to through professional and it'll always stay professional, then you'll get to personal and it'll always stay personal. Every now and then in my role as a chaplain and at the time working for FCA, that next step was a spiritual relationship. And that is a pretty intimate relationship that you get to talk and deal with people on. But they had to trust me enough to tell me about their families and their wife or their their husband or their their kids or, you know, all that's so where they went to school, their upbringing. But that all started with, you know, how's the team looking, coach? How's, you know, this player doing? How's the attitude of the team? It was all professional. It all started on a professional level. So I always encourage people that are and I still use it today. I still use it because I'm sitting in a staff meeting every day with Jimbo Fisher and the, the whole Texas A&M football staff, just like I'm one, I mean, I'm one of the staff guys. So I'm still, we just had a coach get married. I stopped by his office the other day, just asking him about the wedding. I just asked him, you know, about his bride, you know, what songs they danced to just all those things. Cause he's a newer coach on our staff. Well, pretty soon now we're kind of getting into the personal stuff and then it's just going to continue to grow from there. So some some move quickly, some move slowly, but you got to be willing to invest the time. So and that's just that that goes with when I was dealing with Rowdy and those guys at the University of Houston. Whether I'm dealing with uh, Christian Kirk and Miles Garrett and these guys at Texas A&M, 
or whether I'm dealing with coaches, it doesn't matter. You just got to continue the same processes, the professional, personal, and spiritual um, relationships, if that helps. Yeah. Kyle, you talk – go ahead, Walls. No, you're fine. You're fine. Well, I was going to say, you know, you've talked about so much, and, and with me and even on here a little bit, about how your dad has kind of molded you into the person you are. And I always thought he had an, an awesome story and about toughness. And, um, you know, and, and if it's too personal, we don't have to talk about it, obviously. But he even his, you know, getting married was like a, uh, to your mom yeah. and while dating her was like a, a, during that time, that was a struggle just from everybody else. I mean, he had to fight through that, which is, is crazy at this time in the world. But, you know, with those two getting married, it was like, um, you know, that was a struggle, I would assume, almost every day for him. Yeah, I, I'll tell you, my parents – yeah, I grew up in Olathe, Kansas, okay, a suburb of Kansas City. Um, my, my, uh, my parents started dating in high school. So my dad graduated high school in 1969, my mother in 1971. And they started dating, and my father's black, my mother's white. And during that time of the late 60s, early 70s, interracial relationships were not smiled on. Um, They're they're frowned on then. They're not smiled on as much now, but, you know, they're being a little bit more accepted. But my mom graduated high school in May of 1971. They got married June 6th of 71. And so literally fresh out of high school, they started their life together. Um, shortly after that, my brother Chris was born. Then four, three and a half years later, I was 1975, I was born. And some of the names they had to, they were in big, they, from, from, from teachers, some of the names and just some of the, the, the vicious slang things were just slung at them. They had to endure a lot. And my dad, man, he was a fighter. I'm not going to lie, man. He'd throw his hands at the drop of a dime. And um, and some of those situations caused him to throw his hands, you know, whether it was in my mother's honor or whatever it was. But, man, Carl Henson, he was known that the wind changed directions. He was ready to throw his hands. Um, but at the end of the day, my dad always had a job. He was very responsible. My mother had family members, um, not her parents. Her parents were amazing people. My grandparents, they loved my dad from day one. And, but there were family members who disowned my mom and her, my mom's parents for allowing it to happen. And it wasn't really until about 25 years of marriage that they kind of came, came around. And finally they come around and said, well, I guess Carl's a pretty good man, you know, and it's like, wow, he's raised two sons and uh, they've been married for 25 years at the time. And so they went through it, man. They, they went through from both sides. Now it wasn't just the whites not liking the relate. It was blacks as well. And they experienced it from both sides. But here's the cool thing. You go to my family reunion now and my dad, there were 10 kids in the family, five boys, five girls, all five boys so my dad and my four uncles are married to Caucasian women and it's pretty cool when you come to a family function or whatever and there's just a whole bunch of biracial kids like myself running around and um you know with happy families and things like that man you fast forward now my parents have been married 47 years they just celebrated 47 years the pastor who married them was a Caucasian man and his church threatened to kick him out of the church if he did the ceremony and he went forward with the ceremony and said, these two love each other. 
And I'm never going to come in between that. And so he risked really his pastoralship at his church uh, in order to marry my parents. And so uh, Dr. Gross was his name and he's home in heaven now, but what a, what a pioneer, what a guy who stood for truth, stood for love, uh, um, those things. And so he performed the ceremony and by only by the grace of God, only by the grace of God have my parents been married 47 years. And, um, to be honest, my dad's retiring, uh, August 11th. And so, um, they were together from when my dad first got a job and he's kept a job for this long. And now he's going to be retiring here <laughs> in a few days. So, um, I learned a whole lot from my parents, how to endure, um, how not to let people run over you, especially my dad taught me those things, but he also taught me how to treat people with respect. And I'll be honest, he taught me how to work hard, man. He taught me just the value of work ethic. Um, my dad would work nights, he'd work days, he was always in the grocery business. So he would do whatever it took to continue to provide for the family. And that's an honorable thing. You know, it says in the Bible, if, if a man doesn't work, break his plate, he doesn't eat. And so um, my dad, man, he busted his tail. And I learned a, a ton from him. And I, it's funny, I'll do things now and I'm like, holy crap, that's Carl Henson. You know, <laughs> and, uh, I, not only did I learn from him, I'm emulating him and things like that. And from time to time, I'll have a chance to tell him and he'll take the, the road of humility and say, ah, son, I didn't do that. I'm like, dad, yes, you did. You taught me a ton. And there's times where I wouldn't, didn't think I was listening, but man, I was, I was soaking it in. So I, um, I love my dad. We have a great relationship. He's always been active and involved in my life as much as he worked. He never missed my games. Um, he was always there, man. He comes straight from work with his, uh, his slacks and his shirt and tie on and he comes straight to the game. So, um, I'm, I'm honored uh, to be a young man, well, an older man, but I, I was a young man who had his dad active in his life. And, um, that is, and I know the coaches, you guys fill those roles. I fill the, the roles, but it is awesome when young men or kids in general have their dads and especially young girls too. They need to see how daddy's treating mama and they just need to see what an honorable man looks like. So uh, it's awesome when, when fathers are actively engaged and present in their sons and their daughters' lives. Coach, that's an awesome story. I think, you know, it, it's always so much more powerful, you know, when you, when you can, you know, speak from firsthand knowledge or, or, you know, when it's a storytelling deal instead of, you know, research or, or a secondhand story. Uh, I'm, I'm also interested in, you know, kind of hearing your story, how, you know, you, you kind of got into the, the work with, you know, as being a team chaplain, you know, kind of what's your, yeah. your background and, and, you know, your, your faith and, and kind of getting to that role. Yeah. Well, I, let me just, I'll just kind of fly through this, but I didn't grow up in the church. So I, we grew up great people, great morals, a really good family, you know, had issues just like every other family, but um, church, a relationship with the Lord was not high priority in our home. And so um, I really wasn't introduced. There was a young lady in the seventh grade named Dawn White. Okay. Dawn White was pretty and she had gum every day. So I <laughs> sat by her in class and it was uh, unbelievable because it got to a point where I'd write her a note. Right. And I'd say, Hey Dawn, would you like to go to the movies? My mom, take your mom, pick up. Right. That was my line at the time. And um, it never worked. And so she always said no, but then she'd always respond on that note. Uh, but you're more than welcome to come to my youth group. I go to First Baptist, Olathe, Kansas. 
um, you're more than welcome to come. And I would never, I would always say, no, nah, I'm good. You know, I'm not going to go to that. So time goes on. Don White and I become really good friends. It got past the point of, I thought she was really attractive. The gum, we became great friends. In the, our 10th grade year, she came up to me and said, Mikado, they found a lump in my throat and they think that it could be cancerous. So just say a prayer for me. Prayer was foreign to me, right? So I, prayer to me was, now lay me down to sleep type deal. So I, I, but I said, absolutely, Don. I'm sure all will be well, right? So she goes and she does all the, 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 the biopsy and stuff like that. Well, it comes back as Hodgkin's lymphoma. And that little bitty lump on her throat became the size of a grapefruit. She had to end up having that removed, uh, going through chemo and radiation, just fought and fought and fought. And she would always say to me, and this it was foreign to me, but she would always say to me, don't worry about me, Mikado. God has a plan for my life. And I'd always say, Don, what are you talking about? You're so young. You know, you should be living your best life right now. And you're going through these things. And she'd always have a smile with a wig on. Don't worry. God has a plan for me. And it didn't make sense to me. So fast forward to our senior year of high school, her cancer goes into remission. But if you know with cancer, anyone who's dealt with that, it also, through the radiation, all that stuff, your immune system gets shot. Right. So her immune system was shot. She came down with some type of bug. It became pneumonia. And our senior year of high school, Don White died. Wow. And I had no idea. No, no, I had no concept of what just happened. I just remember going to her funeral saying you were 17 years old. You know, like, I can't believe this happened to you. So fast forward, Don White was the very first person who would ever share her faith with me. And I knew she consistently lived it out. That was intriguing to me, but I didn't know what this thing was about. So through the line, now I go to college, junior college and just start inquiring more and kind of just, I was going to school to be a chef, didn't want to be a chef. So kind of going through a weird transition in my life. And I heard the gospel again, and it was familiar because I said, this is what Don used to share with me. And December of 1993, I received Christ into my life as my savior. Notice I didn't say Lord because I didn't give him complete control. I didn't surrender my life completely to him, but he, I knew he saved me and I received him as my savior. And so uh, after junior college, I ended up going all the way to Norfolk, Virginia to finish my undergrad, got out of the culinary stuff. I was going straight mass communications, broadcasting. I thought I was going to be a world famous broadcaster, particularly in the field of boxing. Right. That's and right. Um, yeah. I remember, I remember I was doing, I was, I had a radio show every single day in college. Uh, it was a jazz format show. It was crazy, bro. I mean, I'm playing <laughs> music that, that was way out of my element, man. I'm playing Grover Washington. I'm like, Hey, this is McCann. You know, I'm doing my old radio thing. And, and then, but I also was doing um, some sport. I didn't play college football. So I was doing broadcasting for the football team and the basketball team, traveling with them, doing radio play-by-play uh, -play and color commentary. But I, I was also growing in my faith, okay? So as I was thinking that I was going to become a world-famous broadcaster, I was starting to feel a tug on my heart. There was something more, and it wasn't just strictly broadcasting. Well, my grandfather, we're going to piece this all together, my grandfather in Olathe, Kansas, who has passed away from Parkinson's disease, he had Parkinson's for 19 years, I remember him telling me, don't you know someone with the fellowship of Christian athletes? And I'm like, I do. I go to church with someone whose brother works for them. And 
the headquarters is in Kansas City, where I'm from. So I end up, you know, making a few phone calls, things like that. Long story short, um, when I'm in a, a senior in college, just graduated, and I got a job with Fellowship of Christian Athletes, I was now married with a young child who's now 20, but she was young at the time, nine months old, and we packed up everything from Virginia Beach area and moved to Houston, Texas. Okay, so November 1 of 1998, I joined the FCA staff in inner city Houston. So I'm covering inner city schools like Milby, Madison, Sharpstown. I mean, I'm right there in the, the, the thick of things. And I have no idea to how to do this thing called sports ministry. So in the year 2000, we got a call at our office from Coach Dana Demmel, who's now the head coach at UTEP. Mm -hmm. um, got a call from Dana Demmel, said, I'm really looking for someone to be my chaplain. And our boss kind of just asked around the office, anyone interested in being, you know, doing chapel services for University of Houston football? And I raised my hand and said, man, I got saved in college. I would love to do something like this. So I started getting plugged in with them. But even before I became chaplain there, I was a chaplain for Houston Baptist University women's basketball team. <laughs> and that's where I kind of cut my teeth on speaking to teams. And I was also the chaplain of uh, Madison High School football home of Vince Young, right? Yep. So I was his chaplain, uh, his high school chaplain, and I was Houston Baptist women's basketball. Then I became the chaplain at the University of Houston, but I was still doing inner city FCA, okay? I hope this isn't boring everyone to death, but no, this, is journey. this is the journey. And so, um, so I was still just really doing middle school and high school FCA ministry and then going over to U of H once, maybe twice a week, um, to do chapel and just go to maybe a practice. Well, then Art Bryles becomes the head coach at University of Houston. And um, at the time, I had an opportunity to leave University of Houston, go to Las Vegas, and become the FCA director in Las Vegas. And I really thought that's where my family, my wife and my kids and I were going. Um, we, it, it's, Long story short, just felt like God wasn't calling us. And at the time when I came back from saying no to Vegas, Coach Browse said, Cato, we need you full time right now. And I said, Coach, I've been praying that this opportunity would present itself and it would take me out of the high schools and the middle schools in the inner city and it would put me at U of H full time. And so we approached the athletic director, Dave Maggard at the time, and um, we kind of pre presented it in a way that it would make it seem like it was his baby. <laughs> So, you know, we, we didn't want to come in and demand and saying, this is what we're going to do. We're going to say, Mr. Maggard, you know, this, these are the opportunities, how it could help the student athletes and things like that. He bought in, um, and I was still on FCA staff, but I was working now um, during the Art Browse era full-time at U of H. They gave me an office, um, all of those things. So Art leaves for Baylor, and before he even tells the team, he pulls me in his office. This is kind of stuff I don't ever share, but <laughs> – <laughs> and he, offer, he offers me an opportunity to go with him to Baylor. And he said, I'm about to go tell the team that I've taken the job. And I said, Coach, I'm, I'm honored, but I'm really going to have to pray about that with my wife. And three weeks later, he kind of had kept calling me saying, hey, Kato, do you have a decision? Do you have an answer? You know, we've got a, a vehicle for you. We've got an office for you. We've got all these things for you to be on Baylor staff, all that stuff. And then um, three weeks later, I said, Coach, I love you. I did Kendall. I mean, I officiated his son Kendall's wedding, right? I'm mm -hmm. close with his family. I said, coach, I love you, but God's not calling me to Baylor. And I helped him find someone 
But, and then Kevin Sumlin came to Houston. And for the first year, he really just kind of watched me and kind of how I operated. <laughs> and I'll never forget, I think I spoke at a, a preseason chapel. And after that, his right-hand man, Justin Moore, came up and said, Coach loves you, and you're his guy. And so I was with Kevin Sumlin for four seasons. I was with Art, Dana Demel, Art, Kevin for four. And then when Kevin left for Texas A&M, he offered me a position, prayed about it. We said no, stayed for a year with Tony Levine. He asked me the next year, prayed about it, said no, stayed another year with Coach Levine. The third year, he came back and asked me again and said, this is a, we're creating a position and you're my first and second guy that I have in mind. I don't have a backup plan. And it wasn't anything he said. It wasn't a pack. I said yes to the job before I heard what the salary was. So anyone who, who has ever said, oh, Mikado just left for the money, uh, let me just clear it up. I said yes before I even knew what I was going to make because we operate on calling. In our home, man, we, that's just how we roll. So um, the third time, I prayed about it. It was the hardest decision I had to make, man. Um, but we left in 2014. That was my first season as the director of player development for Texas A&M football. And obviously I was with Kevin for four seasons and now the first season I'm working with Jimbo. So that is kind of my journey. It wasn't intended to be for ministry, but I, God captured my heart and um, he still has my heart. And I'd like to think that I've grown in, in these years. This is season 19 for me uh, in college football. And um, I, I, I don't want to say I feel like I'm just getting started because I've been doing it for a while, but I feel just as called for this training. We report tomorrow. I feel just as called about reporting tomorrow as I did way back in the day. So that's kind of the journey. And um, I guess the rest of it is to be continued. Well, and one of the cool things that I always thought, um, and it was, and I, I would assume it doesn't get, I think it's it's uh, all above the belt, so I don't think it's bad. I don't know, but Coach Sumlin would always say, I, I don't care if you guys go to ministry, but we'll have it every day before a game. But I do want you guys to go mm -hmm. listen to Mikado at least that one time. And it was at the very beginning mm -hmm. of the season. And I always – I don't know what it was about that, but I just always thought that was really cool that, that you'd have a head coach that was, that was about it that much. It was like, yeah, I'm not going to push anything on you guys. And he never did by any means, but – Right. He always wanted to, everyone to get to go listen to you at least one time before the season started as a mass group and for you to get to talk to the team as a whole. And I always thought that was a pretty big deal. I thought it was a big deal, Rowdy. I thought it was a really big deal. And it was an honor that he would even do that. And, you know, someone said, you know, man, I'm not going to that. They had to go talk to Coach Sumlin and tell him why they weren't coming for that, for that initial one in training camp. And I think all he wanted to do was expose guys mm -hmm. to um, not just the spiritual things of life, but, you know, just manhood one-on-one, just being able to engage iron sharpening iron. And it wasn't the vessel. It was the message. So it wasn't necessarily Mikado, even though we had the relationship, but it was the message that was being presented and how it was being presented. Right. So I, I was honored that coach would always make that one as, voluntary mandatory type deal um, because I also knew that I wasn't the type of guy that was going to beat people over the head. Right. You know, you center, turn or burn, you know, that's not me. I wasn't one that way. I was one with loving kindness. And so I always wanted to just love guys right where they were. And, mm -hmm. and coach having that one little mandatory slash voluntary 
chapel service. Now the rest of the year, you can make your decision. If you choose not to go, it's okay. And we had guys who chose not to go. I didn't love them any less. I didn't, I engaged them just the same. They just didn't come to chapel. Big deal. Because chapel service was the icing on the cake. The real ministry was going on day to day when there was no crowds, when there was no game to play. That was when the real stuff was going on. So to come to chapel service, great. If you don't, I love you just the same. But I love that a head coach like Kevin Sumlin was given, um, given the young men the opportunity to hear from themselves and then make their own decisions of whether they wanted to continue throughout the season or not. Well, you talk, you talk about the day-to-day. To me, the coolest part was, like, even if you didn't – you know, like, even like you said, you, you would have, people would have conversations, and it didn't seem like a huge deal just having conversations. And, you know, for me, it was almost the same way, having good conversations. It's all good. I'm hearing you, and I'm going through life. And it's like it's not until – that stuff's not super, super important until, man, you finally get knocked to your knees, something bad happens to you, or, or you go through a whole mm. huge change in your life. And now – you're not at that point, you know, you're, you're you got to be humble. You, you know, I always think, especially now I'm like, it's either you better be humble. Or you're going to get humbled at some point. And so bam, you get humbled at least now, now you can go back. Now really the flood starts coming. Okay. I remember talking about this. I remember hearing this. I remember hearing this. And it's like, that's when yeah. it's nice to have that big toolbox. It's, it's seed sown, man. You know, you sow seeds. You don't see, you don't see that the fruit from that seed that was sown, Maybe until down the line, like you said, it's it's just adding things to the toolbox. It's things that you can pull back and say, man, I remember that conversation with Mikado. I remember with Coach, you know, he he was saying this or whatever it might be. You you remember those conversations that may kind of seem nonchalant and mundane at the time, but you pull back on them and you go, wow, there was a lot of wisdom in that. Or, man, I I should have listened more in that. I know I've done that. Um, Or I'll say, man, so-and-so was really trying to speak some wisdom to me and I wasn't trying to hear it. But if you can, if you can, if you have the ability to hear and listen, it'll soak in. It's a seed sown. Pretty soon, that seed will produce something. You'll go, "Wow, it makes sense now." <laughs> you know, they yeah. were they were trying to tell me life after football. This is what it's like. This is what they're trying to teach and preach, or whatever it was. So, it is, man. It's just a constant sowing of seed. And I always love the parable in the scriptures. The farmer never looked to see where the seed landed. He just reached in his bag and sowed the seed. And, and some people's hearts were hard, like the past. Some people's were rocky. Some people's were thorny soil where it was good for a while and the thorns of things of this world choked it out. But then some of those seeds were sown on good ground, man. And later on, those things produce a real harvest. And so um, I just love being a seed sower. That's all I'm doing. And that's all I'm called to do is just sow seeds of love. And um, there's always going to be some type of reward from it. Coach, what were maybe some of the different philosophies of those head coaches, like, you know, where they would insert you as far as, like, speaking to the whole team? Because I remember, you know, when I worked at Tulsa, we'd always have the chaplain talk to us, like, you know, Thursday night after practice, and there'd be some sort of lesson. Were there there any strategies they had that way to kind of, you know, for you to start planting those seeds? Yeah. um, You know, Coach Demmel, his deal was really just before the game, and that was kind of – I spoke really during the season, everything else, you know, I was still doing middle school, high school things. So I, he has someone named Barrick Neely, who was one of our quarterbacks who was doing the same role that I'm doing player development. Mm-hmm. So, uh, which I love, I, I, it warms my heart that not only do I love coach Demo, 
But one of my former athletes, one of our former guys, he played for Coach Demo, is now his director of player development. So doing those things in the community, things like that. So here's what, um, like with art, um, I would do a coach's Bible study. And, you know, once a week with the coaches, uh, it was tougher at different times during the year. And then with the, the, the young men, there were opportunities to do college retreats, right? So we would get on a, a bus and go out to Glen Rose, Texas, or other different places and, and do these different things we call college advance. So it was like getting them away for the weekend. Um, we would do player-led uh, Bible studies, um, go through books. Went through a book by King, uh, Tony Evans called Kingdom Man with some of the guys. Um, we would have our regular FCA meetings. So there were always opportunities to grow spiritually in season and out of season. Um, but I, what I really enjoyed was during the season, home and away, is that we would have chapel service. And it was voluntary. And this is with all the, the coaching staffs. We're all pretty similar. Um, but was I was able to get to a point where I'd bring in different guest speakers yes. as well. Because mm -hmm. guys would hear me all the time. It was like, okay, great. And whether I was a chapel speaker or not was no big deal. I'm the chaplain, which means I'm there on a day-to-day, -day, you know, just going through life with these young men. But to bring some real high-powered, high-quality speakers to come in to share with our guys, that's life-changing. Guys will remember that. Rowdy probably remembers different guys that would come in and speak. Yeah. Um, we just, you know, I just, I reach big, I shoot big. I want them to have the best experience. But Art was the first person that really got me involved in recruiting. Um, again, I can't go off campus and recruit, but when they're on campus, I told them, you, you catch the fish, I'll help clean them. You know what I mean? So art would bring, whether it be junior days, official visits, things like that, I would be actively engaged. And then Sunday mornings, Kevin continued this and still continuing it is there's an optional chapel for the families and for the young men on Sunday mornings. And so you get breakfast. And it's about a 15 minute message. And I'm saying, Hey, look, you guys are here. A lot of you may go to church on Sundays, um, but I'm going to bring it to you today. And so we're just going to go through just a few verses and talk about it. And so hopefully it'll uh, kind of help fill the, 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 the void of you missing your local church today. So getting involved in those, uh, they would always bring recruits by my office and just to sit with the mom, dad, and the young man and um, just kind of share with them what we're doing on the FCA angle and, and, and the spiritual component of, of a, being a student athlete. So art really got me involved in that. Kevin amped it up a notch, you know, from there. And, and Jimbo has even kept it going and, and really kept me real involved um, with official visit weekends and meeting with recruits, you know, when they come to campus. You talk about you know, those weekend, uh, weekend retreats. I know I went on one of them. And then also now at Texas A&M, and maybe did it at Houston too, I can't remember. But I, I know I see a lot of pictures of it at A&M. You know, you guys going on these, on these big missions, right? a, a bunch of, of players yeah. going on these missions. And, and everyone I've ever heard go on it or seen on Twitter from, from, from the, your players, it's just, I mean, almost life-changing to go on some of these missions to these underprivileged places. Yeah, it's it's a real eye opener. We've gone to Haiti the last three years um, while I've been at A and M. My last year at Houston, I took uh, eight athletes to um, uh, the Yucatan in Merida, Mexico, um, to really help with a sports camp, sports clinic, things like that. And so that was a really a short. We went over spring break. That was a short trip, and then I left for A and M. And um, yeah, so the first year we took um, thirty five total. 
um, male and female athletes to Haiti. That included Trevor Knight, Miles Garrett, um, some of the guys who are playing in the NFL now, Josh Reynolds for the Rams, um, Deshaun Hall for the Panthers, uh, Jermaine Illuminor, who's an offensive lineman for the Ravens. I mean, it was a cool, cool group of young people on that trip. We were really close. The next year, the trip grew to 72. Jeez. And wow. that was unreal. I, I actually had to stay an extra week in Haiti because we had a basketball player who was from Columbia and his visa was canceled and he didn't know it. So we had to continue to, we had to go to the embassy every day for a week trying to get his visa. And then finally a week later we got it. We're able to come home. But, um, and then this, this past year we, um, we took 54 this past year. Um, here's what I'll say, getting outside of our comfort zone, you know, going to hate the poorest country in the Western hemisphere. Okay. There's still political unrest, the government. I mean, there's no infrastructure really to anything that's going on, but there's groups like mission of hope, uh, that we go with mission of hope, Haiti. They have schools, they feed over 90,000 people a day, um, through their food program, different orphanages, different schools, they, and churches and things like that. But they have two schools, they have an orphanage, they have a medical clinic that does full prosthetics. they have people that come from all over the island to come to their medical clinic. They have a church. They partner with different churches and different villages. And we are just helping fulfill the vision that they have. There are other teams from other universities that go. We've seen them there. And so A&M has gone three years and plan on going the fourth, fifth, and however long the Lord tells us. But I told, told all the people who go, you, we're not going because we're not superstars, anything like that. The only S that's going to be on our chest is not that of Superman. It is going to serve. We're going to serve people that were created in God's image that he loves and has a plan for. And they just happen to speak a different language and live in a different country. We're just going to go engage with them and everything Mission of Hope is doing, building, painting, sharing, um, uh, educating, all those things. All we're going to do is help partner with them. The cool thing is we're going to offer our services whether it be digging, building, painting, whatever, we end up getting changed probably than more than the people that we are trying to go help. It is unreal to watch it happen every single year. And the last day of our trip, we offer athletes that are on our, on our trip from our group to get baptized. And we've baptized probably over 30 athletes over the three years. And we've had a handful of those athletes give their life to Christ for the first time. And it was an eye opener saying, man, I thought I had everything in life. And I realized I didn't have the most important thing in life. That was a relationship with the Lord. And it might be someone at a home we go visit in Haiti and they're just sharing. I don't have anything, but I have God. That means I have everything. And it's an eye opener for some, for us who have everything, but seemingly we don't have anything. And so it's a, it's a weird deal how it happens, but everyone goes with the expectation. Yeah, we're going to go help the Haitians and da, 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 da. Midway through the trip, it's like, oh, snap, they're helping me. <laughs> and uh, it becomes a life-changing trip. And so anyone who has an opportunity to serve with a church or, or a humanitarian organization to go serve in a different country with no other agenda, I encourage everyone to do it at some point in their life. It's humbling and it's very rewarding just because, you get to see people who don't talk like you, don't look like you, 
but you can learn something from, and it's a pretty special trip. That's, that, that's why we can't wait to go every single year. Wow. That's just awesome stuff. I mean, I, I just think again, you know, athletics can, can open so many doors for, for yep. so many different people. I mean, it, it's, it's absolutely unbelievable to me. Um, is, is it something too, when you, when you do get those kids back, I mean, is there, is there kind of like a reflection period that, you know, maybe yep. you sit down and you talk to those kids and just kind of let them vent and talk about it because I mean, to me, what, what an awesome learning opportunity. Yeah, we do. We do that as a group. And then a lot of it happens individually with athletes just coming by my office. <laughs> and um, a lot of those same athletes, yeah, Roddy, it's still happening, bro. Yeah. <laughs> um, coming by the office and just talking and unpacking, unpacking everything they've learned or were challenged with there. I'll give you an example. We have a safety from New Orleans named Deshaun Caper Smith. They call him Lefty. And he's right-handed. It's a weird deal. But nonetheless. <laughs> Uh, Lefty was one of the last people to sign up and I know he doesn't mind me sharing this. I was taking him to get his vaccinations, uh, helping him get his passport, you know, all these things because he finally was like, oh, okay, I'm going to go. It's like I was dragging him. Right. And I knew what was going to happen. I knew, he, okay, you can say I hogtied you and threw you on the bus, you get on the plane, but I knew it was going to happen. He was at a home in a village and we were sharing with these people, just engaging with the people in the villages. And, he started sharing part of his story that he was in hurricane Katrina and that he lost his home. A lot of, you know, just had to evacuate all these different things. Well, the people at the home through translators, they speak Creole started sharing about in 2016 when hurricane Matthew category five hit Haiti. And they started, they said, we didn't have power to lose because we don't have power. All we were hoping was our roofs didn't blow off of our homes because they had like 10 roofs or just kind of just tied together, almost looked like through twist ties and just different things. And Lefty, next thing you know, he's crying. And he's like, I thought I had it bad, and I did. But I didn't know that there were people who had it even worse than me. But these people were still smiling. These people were just still, you know, just amazing people. Well, Lefty came back and said, my life's changed, man. Like, I, I can't believe this. I can't believe that in one week, a country could grab my heart like it has. And he can't wait to go back next year. But now, my relationship with him, just because of the time we engaged in vaccinations, getting vaccinations, getting a passport, um, then traveling together, and then being in a country together, that's taken our relationship to a whole new level. So Lefty... Other athletes are coming by and just continuing to unpack um, what they learn through their experiences there. So we'll do things collectively as a group. A lot of it's also done individually, um, but there is a lot of follow-up. And then we just came out with our video, um, our highlight video from our trip. So it, it kind of captures some of uh, the things that were going on. So, yeah, the follow-up is crucial. If you go on a trip like that and then you just leave the trip there, it's, it's not worth anything. The, the key is growth and follow-up after that. And so that's still continuing to go on. They've got a group chat going on without me, the old guy in there. So the, the <laughs> Haiti group, the, the athletes from Haiti still get together and do things together. And they'll say, oh, yeah, we did this last week. And I, I don't ever know. So I'm like, oh, that's cool. So they're still engaged with each other. I saw about five or six of them that went to Haiti together, different athletes, different sports. I saw them at church the other day, so um, they're still actively engaged and growing, and 
and uh, most of them can't wait to go back next year. Always thought that was the the coolest part, you know, was how tight of a relationship you could you could have with with your athletes. And um, I don't remember what the number was, but when you married me and my wife, you know, you were you're telling us I've, I've already married this many, and I'm sure since well, that's been five years now, I'm sure that's it's doubled since then or whatever because you get to make that cool relationship. And then uh, you know what cool cool part for us was getting to go uh, into in like pre marriage counseling, you know, and one of the yeah. One of the big things that I remember from it, I don't know why this is the one thing that stuck out uh, to me. Of all the good stuff we had, this is almost, you know, the one of the only things I recall, and I recall it almost on a weekly basis, is you were talking mm. about, you know, how you put, like, your wife, and in, in, not in front of your kids, but she's, you know, she's the level, she's level up a little bit, right? You were telling <laughs> a story, I, I can't remember one of your kids <laughs> might have accidentally hit her or, or whatever it was, or not accidentally, but they were young. Uh. And being a young kid, yeah, and, and you know, you, you didn't get in their face, but you got after them a little bit. Hey, that's my wife. Don't mess with my yeah. wife. And for whatever reason, yeah. I, I remember that to this day, like on a weekly basis as I'm raising my kid. <laughs> Roddy, I it happened last week. Bro, I'm, <laughs> God is my witness. I, I had to tell my son. My son and I had a real come to Jesus meeting, <laughs> and I said, and I and I said, you disrespected your mother. You broke her heart, son. You broke her heart with the decision you made. I said, but you know what's bigger than that? You disrespected my wife, and now I'm really having a problem with that. I said, let me revisit this for you in case you've forgotten. <laughs> God is my number one priority, my relationship with God. Number two is my relationship with my wife. She is number two in my life. You, your sister Kendall, your sister Maya are number three. I said, if I ever have to choose between you or you guys or her, I'm picking her. I said, and you should respect that. You should love that because I'm hopefully teaching you how to love your wife, how to love your spouse. And, and that's just the, you know, man shall leave his father and mother and become one. That was the first institution, the first relationship. That's the priority, the relationship with God, relationship with your spouse, and it spills over. Because you know what I want the kid, my kids to say, and Rowdy, I know you do too. And Coach Walls, are you married? I'm getting married in December. Come on, baby. Let's <laughs> go. So later on down the road, you know what we want our kids to say. My dad loved my mama. My daddy loved her well. And it, and, and it never, it's not a competition. It's not up for this debate or discussion. I, here's how I love my children. The best I can love them is by loving God and by loving their mother. Mm -hmm. And if I'm loving their mother, that means I'm loving my wife. So I've let them know, Rowdy, it's funny you bring that up. This, this is hot <laughs> off the press, man. Uh-oh. <laughs> I had a re awesome. real, real situation with an adolescent son um, with hormones raging and just not knowing his butt from a hole in the ground. <laughs> hey, man, we had a real come-to-Jesus meeting, and um, – that same thing that you remembered got brought up in our conversation. <laughs> hey, either I need to get new material or that thing, um, that thing is uh, a classic uh, story, a classic quote, classic teaching. I think that's what it is. I, I love it. Like I said, I, I think it's, about it almost weekly. It's a law, man. It's the truth, man. It <laughs> is the truth. And, and the other thing we always shared in, in premarital counseling, Rowdy, and you probably remember this, is um, – um, you know, to always honor, you know, your spouse and things like that, because God's reputation is at stake. At the end of the day, 
God's reputation is at stake. And a lot of people are going to see the realness and the authenticity and the love of God through a loving husband and his wife, not a perfect husband and wife, but a loving husband and wife. And so at the end of the day, God's reputation is at stake of how we treat each other. And so that was always another one of the main teachings we would teach in premarital counseling. But to answer your question, Rowdy, yes, I've done a lot more weddings <laughs> of guys that were teammates of yours. I just did Zeke Reiser's wedding. Oh, wow. Yeah, uh, I, knew, I heard about that. I didn't know you did it, but I, yeah. I heard he just had one. Saw some of the teammates there. Uh, Kevin Forsh, um, Amin Bebahani, and Ty Cloud were there. Um, so it was cool catching up with those guys, but did his wedding, uh, doing the premarital counseling is unbelievable just cause you know, it's a time for my wife and I to get transparent and vulnerable, you know, with the couple that a young man usually that's been one of my guys, you know, and to be able to see me in a different role and things like that, it's always a special time. So to be able to do, to do your wedding, um, Kendall Browse, uh, Case Keenum, I did Case's wedding. Um, bro, it's, it's just, I am horrible, horrible <laughs> at documenting whose weddings I've done. So you can say, how many have you done? And I'm just going to guess and say 30 or so, That's but funny. I don't know. I don't know, man. So I've got, I've done a couple of my former A&M players weddings too. So, um, that's just, that trend is kind of continuing. I think it's so cool when you can have somebody, you know, that, that you're close to, to, to be able to officiate the wedding. I'm, I'm actually having, uh, we're going to Hawaii and we're going to do it out there. I mean, I've been with my, I call her my wife. I mean, it's going to be actually this weekend, it'll be five years that we've been together, but we're going to make wow. it kind of, kind of uh, official uh, in December. And my brother's actually going to get you know, uh, ordained or certified or whatever. And he's actually going to do the ceremony. Yeah. And honestly, you know, my, my brother's, my younger brother's one of my heroes because, you know, one, one of the same ways. I mean, been married, has three kids, you know, and he's one of the, the younger brothers that I look up to. So, I mean, it, I just think it's a real cool deal when you can, you can share with somebody, you know, in that moment. I tell you what, there, there's going to be no more special moment for you, man. I know. To have I'm your brother. <laughs> Bro, you're going to have to keep it together, man, because that's going to be an emotional time. <laughs> you marrying your bride and your brother doing it. I mean, that you talk about special. <laughs> it's crazy. I tried to get my dad to do it, but my dad was like too scared. He's like, nah, I'll be breaking down because he probably can't believe I'm getting married, you know? <laughs> <laughs> How old are you, Coach Wallace? I'm 39. So I'm, I'm, okay. gonna be ju I'm just going to be getting it out of the way before I, I turn 40. But my brother, my brother stepped up. You know, he's pretty even keeled. Like, oh, yeah, I can do it. Don't worry. All right. Oh, I think that is awesome, man. Yeah, I'm excited. Well, you should be. Congratulations. My wife and I will celebrate 21 years in October. Wow. We got we got married at 22, so um, we were still in college, man, living off of Pringles and turkey burgers. <laughs> Dude, I'm not lying, man. We Our landlord gave us discount and rent if we took care of the lawn and stuff like that, and I was like, shoot. I'll mow every grass in this neighborhood for a discount of my rent. And so, man, we, I was in college, had a new baby, new bride. I mean, it was just unbelievable. But we lived at the Dollar General, bro, and getting Pringles. And we buy those one-pound Genio tube of turkey, those ground turkeys. Man, oh, yeah. we'd make hamburger helper. we make turkey burgers. Man, we'd do everything. But we, those are some of the most cherished and precious times because we didn't have anything. But we had each other. 
and that was pretty cool. So that's, that's my bride. Uh, Rowdy knows my wife, Chandra, well. Yeah, and, and she got to, you know, that was the cool part, too, when we were doing the premarital counseling was Katie loved it. You know, Katie got to go and, yeah. and see you guys interact, and it was something big for us. I think it's big for a lot of kids, you know, especially some kids that maybe didn't have both their, their parents or their parents are divorced or, you know, kids that yeah. grow up that way. They don't get to see a husband and a wife and how they're supposed to uh, – interact necessarily and so i think it was a big deal and it was really cool for me um well, well coming know, up on an hour oh, go I, ahead, still try, I still try to do that right no i just said I, I still try to do that now um i try to bring my son and i'm a little bit careful more careful my daughter is 20 and 17 if you know what i'm saying but <laughs> i try to bring i try to bring them around as much as possible um around the guys because i want them to see me as dad and I also bring them around, you know, my wife or I'll have people over to the house because I want them to see me as a husband as well, that I'm not just the player development, or the chaplain. This I'm a regular guy. So I'm going to turn on the fight on TV and invite guys over to watch the boxing match or the UFC fight, whatever it is. So I'm like, hey, man, we're not going to talk about anything. I'm not going to poke and pry. <laughs> we're just going to chill, man. I just want to just fellowship with you guys. So um, that's, that's also special when you can bring them over to the house and they can kind of see in a more relaxed mode. Well, have you, uh, I think my junior or sophomore year was the first time you announced a boxing match or, or one of the more recent. <laughs> so have you got to announce yeah. any boxing matches since then? I have quite a few, some in Houston and some in College Station. So, you know, not only the ones in College Station are amateur shows, the ones in Houston are pro shows. And so I've probably done probably 10 or so shows in my life. And, you know, it's just awesome. I, I take it so Man, I, I always think, and here's what I think, and I think any young coach, young athlete, whoever's listening, man, this, it's my game day. So when I'm announcing a fight, it's at a ballroom, okay? There's no world, <coughs> excuse me, there's no world champions fighting, anything like that. But this is my HBO. This is my Showtime moment, man. So <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm writing down on note cards in the blue corner that's written in blue ink. In the red corner, it's written in red ink. I'm finding out weights. I'm finding out trunk color. I'm finding out nicknames, all those things. So when I'm standing in the ring and they're like, ah, this is low key, Mikado, you can just wear khakis and a button down shirt. I said, no, 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 those guys don't do that. They wear black suits. But yeah, well, I'm not renting a tux. But I'm wearing my black suit, my white shirt and black tie every time. And so, um, you know, I get in there and I, I try to do the most professional announce, announcing for every guy that I can possibly do because all it takes is one person to record it and it, someone to put it out and say, there's this guy in Houston. He does these ring announcing events and stuff like that. And if ESPN or Showtime says we're looking for an announcer, they know they got one that's close by. So I, I, I do a lot of them and I take it really, really seriously. They give me a hundred bucks or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, you could, you could, I'll do this for free, man. Shoot. I'm trying to get my foot in the door. So yes, awesome. I still do them right. And I love doing them. Just That's think, awesome. man, if you'd, if you'd have went to Las Vegas, man, maybe you'd have got your foot in the door. <laughs> I'll tell you, one time I was, in, I was in Germany with the heavyweight champion of the world, Chris Bird. He was mm -hmm. fight, he, I used to travel around the world with him, right? Another and guy you like brought in. Partner. To us. That's right. Another guy brought in, and, and Chris um, was fighting Vladimir Klitschko in Mannheim, Germany. So I go with Chris's wife to kind of just check out the locker room area, the ring, all that stuff, kind of before the, uh, the day before the fight. And Michael Buffer is in the ring doing his sound check, right? Mm -hmm. 
So this is like my moment to listen to <laughs> Mr. No, I mean, Mr. Let's Get Ready to Rumble. Are you kidding me? There's no – he's in there with a few sound guys, and he's in the, in the ring, ladies and gentlemen, you know, doing all that stuff. I walk up to the ring, and I'm just leaning on the ring, right? And when he's talking to the sound guys or whatever, all of a sudden I said, ladies and gentlemen, let's get ready. And he said, oh, my gosh, you could take my job. <laughs> I said, well, I said I'd have to find a new uh, catchphrase. I said, but I said, to be honest, Mr. Buffer, like, I'm watching you because I aspire to do this. And he's like, you have the voice to do it. And so it's cool. The next morning we had breakfast together at the hotel. We were staying at the same hotel. Wow. And I got to pick his brain just about ring announcing and things like that. And what people don't know, he's got a really soft voice. Hmm. He's not a booming guy until he gets on the mic. But he, um, he gave me some cool tidbits and just some things to do, you know, when I'm announcing people and whatnot. So, Yeah. I, I was close to the action, so close, but uh, it's yet to yet to happen. There's been no breakthrough. That's all right. That's Cotto, all right. Cotto, when are you going to get the big the big dogs? Where are they? The heavyweights? When are they going to finally fight? You got to get them them oh. those guys rolling. Anthony Joshua, and yeah. Deontay Wilder. Yeah, they've got to do it, man. And I tell you what, all this that's going on right now is just posturing. I'm telling you, <laughs> all they're doing is trying to build up the fight down the road. All they're trying to do is maximize money in the biggest venue that they can get. I promise you, that's all they're doing. And uh, th I think they'll eventually fight. At some point, they're going to eventually fight. But in the heavyweight division, there's a huge risk because anytime you step in that ring with anybody, those big dudes, man, those are 10-ounce gloves they're using, man. They can put you to sleep with a lucky shot. So <laughs> they're risking a lot by fighting. Joshua's fighting a guy named Alexander Povetkin, who is a real fighter. I mean, if, if Joshua gets knocked out this fight, I'm just telling you, don't be surprised. I mean, this guy's knocked out real guys before. Hmm. So Joshua should win. He's younger, fresh legs, height, power, strength. But this doggone Pavekin can crack. So, <laughs> it, it, and he's, no one's ever heard of him. You know, who's Alexander Pavekin? Dude, he beat Chris Bird. That's how long he's been fighting. He beat Chris. And so, um, He's fighting Joshua soon, and then Deontay Wilder, he's so wild, he's going to either knock you out or he's going to get knocked out. <laughs> so they both, they both need to keep winning because we win if they fight. That's right. But yes. When's the last time we had a great, great heavyweight showdown that we were really anticipating? It's been a long time, man, and it's long overdue. So I'm hoping uh, these guys win these next couple fights and then finally fight each other. You watch any? Uh, I've I've gotten back into boxing now because uh, the dude from Omaha, Bud Crawford, is kind of my favorite in, fighter. He's kind of in my neck of the woods, and I've actually met uh, Bud Crawford a couple times in Lincoln. He's a fun one to watch. He Bud is my favorite fighter to watch. Um, he fights right-handed and left-handed. Yep. So you don't know what do you train for? How do you? He's going to fight southpaw. They'll fight right-handed the whole time. And he's a laid-back dude, but he's a street guy. So when he gets in the ring, man, he's got a mean streak to him. Finish And I'm – oh, if anyone <laughs> ever wants to see this – I'm serious, man. If anyone – and I know you guys, your, your subscribers are growing and this run the powers, man, doing really well. If any of your subscribers ever even want to show their athletes someone who's perfecting their craft, 
find videos of like Terrence Bud Crawford fighting um, Errol Spence. There's a lot of guys who are young, upcoming that are guys who are really hungry. And but Terrence Crawford, man, Bud Crawford from Omaha, Nebraska, is an elite fighter, and I don't see him losing for a long, long, long time. So um, he's my favorite guy fighting right now. He's not scared. He goes up weight classes. He fights anybody. It doesn't, doesn't matter. matter. He's just he's just wrecking shop, wrecking shop to the next weight class. I love it. <laughs> he's unbelievable to watch. Well, Cotto, uh, we don't want to keep you any longer, man. It's been been over an hour now. Probably one of our longer ones, just because it's been you know it, it's memory lane for me almost. Just getting to talk and and get back caught up with <laughs> you. So uh, I've had a blast, and and um, obviously thanks for for everything. And and again, I think it's just so important. And, and I'm glad that Texas a and I'm glad you're getting to do it there because. I think it is just so important because the whole reason we get into football is to turn as coaches is to turn boys into the men, the men that we need leading, you know, society. And and it can be a tough time. I don't think just now in this, this generation, but in any generation it's tough. And so I think that's important. And I think it was an awesome thing at Houston to be able to see a guy that, that like you said, didn't, didn't push your opinion, your, your thoughts, your opinions on anybody, but were there for people you were available and, and showed, Again, to me, the biggest part was you were a guy that that a, that a boy growing into a man would want to be like. Not a again, not a soft-spoken guy that a football player doesn't want to look like one day. You know, a big guy likes boxing, likes football, uh, but could be a, a good father and a good husband. And I think that was important. And so, uh, again, just thanks and, and thanks for taking an hour with us because uh, I had a blast. Well, man, I'm honored. I'm proud of you. Proud of the man that you are. Things you've overcome. Um, man, it just, it just does my heart good, man. When I can catch up with old guys that were my athletes that are now my friends, my brothers. So I'm proud of you for what you're doing just in the coaching world and uh, what you guys are doing for this podcast and just, um, just enlightening people and educating people and encouraging people, man, you guys keep it up. But, um, it was an honor. It was an honor and a privilege and a joy for me to be able to be on with you, Rowdy. Anytime, man. You're my guy. Coach Walls, man, my guy because Rowdy's my guy. So, uh, anytime I can be a resource and help, man, you guys let me know. And that's going to do it for this episode of RTP. We want to again thank all of our sponsors. You guys make sure and go check them out. We grow our community by telling other coaches about Run the Power. And if you enjoy Running the Power, go get your shirt long sleeve or hoodie at runthepower.com also if you have any topics or any questions you would like for us to discuss in the next podcast simply rate our podcast and then leave a comment in the writer review section of the podcast app this will help our podcast rating as well as it allow us to answer the questions you all want answered make sure and go check out our blog at runthepower.com follow me on twitter at harper underscore coach and coach walls at coach brady walls Run the Power now also has its own Twitter and Instagram, and you can find that at Run the Power. Hope you guys enjoyed this one. Talk to you soon.